Chapter One of Zafloya. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Zafloya by Charlotte Docker. Chapter One. The historian who would wish his lessons to sink deep into the heart thereby essaying to render mankind virtuous and more happy, must not content himself with simply detailing a series of events. He must ascertain causes and follow progressively their effects. He must draw deductions from incidents as they arise and ever revert to the actuating principle. About the latter end of the 15th century, on the birth night of the young Victoria de Loredani, most of the youthful nobility of any rank in Venice were assembled at the palazzo of her parents to do honor to the festival. The hearts of all appeared in unison with the hilarity of the scene. Even the lovely and haughty Victoria smiled with an unchecked vivacity. For no fair Venetian had presumed to vie with her, either in beauty of person or splendor of decoration. Another circumstance contributed to elevate her spirits and render her triumph complete. Leonardo, her brother, ever haughty and turbulent in his manners, had acknowledged that she outshone every female present. At this time the Marquess de Loredani had been married seventeen years to Larina de Cornari, a female of unexampled beauty and of rare and singular endowments. If she possessed a foible, it arose from vanity, from too great a thirst of admiration and confidence in herself. At the period of her marriage with the Marquess, she was scarcely fifteen, and he himself not more than twenty. It was a marriage contracted without the concurrence, without even the knowledge of respective friends, resolved on in the delirium of passion, concluded in the madness of youth. Yet, unlike the too frequent result, disgust and repentance did not follow this impetuous union, for chance and circumstances happily combined to render it propitious. Time had not yet perfected the character of Larina. She saw beside her an husband whose ardent love appeared to suffer no diminution no temptations crossed her path. It required, then, no effort to be virtuous, and as, in revolving years, reason approved the choice of a passion at the time undiscriminating, she gradually adored as an husband him she had thoughtlessly selected as a lover. Two children, within two years after their marriage, had been its only fruits. From this circumstance, Lavish and imprudent was the fondness bestowed by the parents upon their idolized offspring. Boundless and weak was the indulgence forever shown to them. The youthful parents little comprehended the extent of the mischief they were doing. To see their wayward children happy, their infantine and lovely faces undisfigured by tears or vexation, was a pleasure too great to be resigned from the distant reflection of future evil possible to accrue from the indulgence. The consequence was that Victoria, though at the age of fifteen, beautiful and accomplished as an angel, was proud, haughty, and self-sufficient, 
of a wild, ardent, and irrepressible spirit, indifferent to reproof, careless of censure, of an implacable, revengeful, and cruel nature, and bent upon gaining the ascendancy in whatever she engaged. The young Leonardo, who was a year older than his sister, having been as much the victim of an injurious fondness as herself, possessed, with all the bolder shades of her character, a warm, impassioned soul, yielding easily to the seductions of the wild and beautiful, accessible of temptation, and unable to resist, in any shape, the first impulses of his heart. This disposition, though it perhaps might never lead him into vice, would prevent him from repelling its inroads with the iron shield of energy. He was violent and revengeful, yet capable of sacrificing himself to a sentiment of gratitude. He had a quick, impatient sense of honor, feelings noble, though impetuous, and a pride, encouraged infinitely by the Marquesa, of birth and family dignity, which, sooner than by an act of meanness have disgraced, he would have perished. Thus it could not be denied that in his ill-regulated character were some bright tints. Such were the children whom early education had tended equally to corrupt, and such were the children whom to preserve from future depravity required the most vigilant care. Aided by such brilliant examples of virtue and decorum, as should induce the desire of emulation. Thus would have been counteracted the evils engendered by the want of steady attention to the propensities of childhood. Yet with all these causes for reflection and deep regret, causes which did not strike the broad beam of conviction upon the eyes of the infatuated parents, yet were they happy. The whole city of Venice contained no pair so happy, Larina di Loredani, still in the meridian of beauty, and still adored by an husband, though not with the fantastic delirium of a boy, yet with an enthusiastic and approved affection. The most beneficent, the noblest, and the best of human beings was the Marquess, admired by all, yet living alone for her whom his boyish heart had worshipped, his unsuspicious and generous nature gloried in the attractions of his wife, to see her followed and admired, yielded to his heart a pleasure exquisite and refined, to hers a sentiment less noble, because it centered in self-gratification, and consideration of self ever debased the heart. At this juncture it may not be amiss for a few moments to digress in stating that at the period which commences this history, the Venetians were a proud, strict, and fastidious people. In no country was the pride of nobility carried to a greater extent. Their manners, also, received a deep and gloomy tincture from the nature of their government, which in its character was jealous and suspicious, dooming sometimes to a public, sometimes to a private death, on mere surmise or apprehension of design against the state, and always by secret trial, its most distinguished members. This power was exercised by Il Consiglio de Diesi, or Council of Ten, by ordering nobles to be hung by the feet between the pillars of St. Mark, or else dispatching them more privately, that the order might not suffer in the opinion of the people by plunging their bodies in the Orfano or otherwise. 
The Venetians were fond of their mistresses, and jealous of their wives to a degree, uniting the Spanish and Italian character in its most sublimated state of passion. To avenge an injury sustained or supposed to be so, to achieve a favorite point, to gratify a desire otherwise unobtainable, poison or the dagger were constantly resorted to, sanguinary and violent by nature, climate, habit, and education, the hatred of the Venetians once excited became implacable and endured through life. Having thus briefly reverted to the character of a nation where the principal scenes of the following history are laid, we proceed with matter more immediately connected with it. It was in the midst of the gay reveling in the Palazzo di Loredani that a stranger arriving at the gates requested admittance to the Marquess. On being told that one acquainted with his name desired to see him, the Marquess ordered immediately that the person should be admitted. When, the doors of the saloon being thrown open, a graceful figure entered, respectfully bowing, and presented to Loredani a letter from the Baron Wormsberg, a German nobleman and most intimate friend of his, wherein he requested of the Marquess that he would exercise his hospitality in favor of Count Ardolf, the bearer, a German likewise of high rank, fortune, and unblemished character. No sooner had the Marquess de Loredani perused the letter than, with conciliating politeness, he extended his hand to the Count and led him immediately to the upper end of the saloon, where Larina, her daughter, and the rest of the company had assembled that the stranger on his entrance might not be disconcerted or pained by fancied observation. He introduced him first to the Marquesa, and then to the company in general. There was that in the air and striking appearance of the Count, which created at once a sensation of awe and admiration. His figure was noble and commanding, and in his features shone a dignity and fascination which, while it irresistibly attracted the regards of all, flattered and delighted, if his could be attracted in return. Yet, once attracted, those powerful regards overpowered by their beauty and their brilliancy those on whom they turned. Such in his personal semblance was Count Ardolf, and as such drew speedily around him a bright circle, of which he became the focus, everyone forgetting, in the ease and gracefulness of his manners, the recentness of his introduction, while his presence diffused around a spirit, a vivacity, and an interest, of which before the assembly had seemed unconscious. Victoria, as the young divinity of the festival, was presented to him by her beautiful and scarce less blooming mother. The eyes of the Count dwelt momentarily upon her charms. He complimented her with politeness, but not with warmth, and turned immediately to the Marquesa with an air so expressive of admiration that an insignificant observer might have remarked the difference of his regards. At a late hour the company separated, and Count Ardolf was conducted to a splendid apartment in the Palazzo of the Marquesa. End of chapter 1